Oh, hello there. Welcome to Penguin Siege Productions. And might I say, you made a mighty fine choice by selecting to listen to Captain America, The Hypocrisy of Freedom. What? You know, for the longest time I dreamed about coming overseas and being on the front lines, serving my country. Finally got everything I wanted. And I'm wearing tights. See, this is what I find fascinating about Cap. In some ways, Steve Rogers and Captain America seems like such distinct, different people. Once he got the serum, he didn't just change physically, but everything within his life was altered. How he was perceived, what he can do, what he should do, it all changed. The possibilities and potential his life had were irreversibly altered. And yet, in the realest of senses, Captain America is still just Steve Rogers. What made you so special? Nothing. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. Even after becoming the super soldier, becoming the idealised Captain America, in this moment, Steve Rogers is still just a man who is held back from his dreams, trapped in a loop of politics and bureaucracy, which stops him from giving to this world the one thing he truly wants, his life. Now to echo Steve Rogers' dilemma, I have a quick question for everyone. Does anyone else ever get the feeling that they aren't who they should be? Maybe it's just me and some undiagnosed psychosis, but sometimes I find that when I'm getting my drive through Macca's cheeseburger with a hash brown instead of a meat patty at 1am, and reflecting back on my life, I can't help but think, surely I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. And no, I don't mean the burgers are better at Hungry Jack's. I mean, I'm 26, and I'm at a drive through by myself at 1am. Surely I had to have had more potential than this. There has to be something better I could, I should, be doing. Obviously, I churned through all the classics. Why didn't I work harder at school? I should have got an internship through uni. I promised I would have been a professional athlete if not for that knee injury. Why didn't I tell that girl I liked her sooner? And you know, they're all fine, valid excuses for why I barely have a good job or long-term relationship prospect at the moment. But then when I take that second bite, that piece of shit no one ever wants you here pickle hits my taste buds, and it really makes me think about me. Not just why I'm here, but why I'm me. Now while here, and yes I've been in this exact position a few more times than I'd care to admit, my mind always seems to start to think about all the things and activities I like. I think about comic books and anime, 70s music, arcade games and D&D, and I think about all these things because I never gave them a second thought until I was over 20. And although it's for slightly different reasons than Captain America, in a way, that's my identity crisis. For so long, Steve Rogers missed out on being a soldier, being the hero he could be, because people couldn't see past his frail exterior. He had his choices stripped away from him. But again, it's a bit different with me and with, I'm going to guess, most people listening to this. It isn't as though anyone shielded me from these things. I just didn't know they existed. It drives me crazy thinking about all the things I missed out on, all the things I'm still probably missing out on without even knowing that they exist. And it makes me think, what if I discovered that passion, chosen that path, taken that leap? What could my life have looked like? And the truth is, I'll never know. No one can ever know if they're truly living up to their potential. Should I blame myself for missing out on these opportunities? Is it my parents' fault, the school system? Or is it just life? Just the consequence of freedom? Because after all, if you have a life full of freedom, and by extension a world full of possibilities, what's to say you're going to find the right ones to make you happy? Hell, it's basic probability. 
The more choices you have in life, the less hope you have of finding the best answer. And so it's with this basic sentiment that I want everyone to consider the question that shall hang over this series. Is freedom good? For most contemporary people, the answer seems to be a resounding yes. However, the political and social emphasis on freedom is itself a surprisingly modern concept. This is in the Western world at least. I unfortunately don't know much about African or Asian philosophical practice being educated in Australia. Thus, in the West, it was really only with thinkers such as Locke, Voltaire and Hume, or plainly to say the Enlightenment movement of the 18th century, that the topic of freedom entered the mainstream. You see, for a large portion of philosophical history, the question wasn't of liberty, but of free will, which can very easily become muddled with religion, because, at least in a Judeo-Christian religion, that's kind of a question in God's realm. Or at least that's how a lot of people looked at it until our good friend John Locke rocked up and dismissed the question of free will as absurd, instead saying that the real question we should ask is whether we are free to will. And see, this is where philosophy gets fun and semantic, because on the surface, the question between free will and our freedom to will seems kinda redundant, right? Well, it isn't. And this is because free will is a question of determinism. Stately, for most it asks, is all our events, including our moral choices, predetermined by previously existing phenomena? Now this could of course mean God, or it could just mean a scientific explanation of all your neurons being preset to fire in a certain way. Which, honestly, all of those are more questions for Kang than they are for Captain America. Inversely, when we ask are we free to will, we are questioning in Locke's own words, is the idea of a power in any agent to do or forbear any action according to the determinational thought of the mind? Hmm, don't you love philosophical writings? Sorry, for those who aren't literate in the language of convoluted, what Locke is saying is that the important question we should ask is, does our mind have the ability to prefer one particular action or choice over another? Because for Locke, if we can recognise that each one of our actions has been chosen by our mind selecting what it would prefer to do, then we are able to wield our will as a power of sorts. Meaning it doesn't matter if what we will is predetermined, because it is still us enacting said power of will. Which, hopefully that makes a little more sense to people. Oh, and actually, I should take a sidestep here and address one constant and valid criticism of this medium while I'm, you know, enacting it. A lot of people, well, okay, a few specialised, but mad people, attack so-called pop philosophy because very often to make philosophy fun and accessible, you have to streamline most of the concepts, and this can lead to a lot of arguments becoming rather reductive, and even sometimes reductive to the point where they're just kinda wrong. Now this happens because the language used in philosophical papers is usually rather convoluted academic jargon, which is the effect of effectively gatekeeping these fields of knowledge to those who are university-educated specialists. So, look, I personally think it's very important to create works that are accessible and can be explored by everyone, especially when you factor in that the basic reason for democracy is so that everyone can have an informed opinion over their political reality, and whether you like it or not, philosophy is a rather big part of politics. Now, maybe these writings are convoluted because, as we just explored with free will versus freedom to will, very subtle and nuanced distinctions can make massive differences in someone's theory, which is why philosophers often feel the need to clarify and re-clarify their points with the most precise language possible. Or, maybe that's all a big excuse, and it's truly as Foucault once jokingly said, you have to have 10% be incomprehensible, otherwise people won't think you're deep, they won't think you're a profound thinker. Irrespective of the reason, pop philosophy needs to simplify these writings, which is why, like most things, pop philosophy sits somewhere in a field of grey. 
you've done well, it can be a wonderful tool to help inform people on historical and contemporary theories that affect our lives. However, if done poorly or maliciously, it can become a negative agent which corrodes the dialogue of our society. But saying it sits in a field of grey doesn't really help, does it? Because the people who dispense pop philosophy are doing it to inform and or educate. So how are we meant to decipher whose information is malicious or helpful, when they're structuring our ability to understand what should be looked at as malicious or helpful? Well, you listen to me, you fool. But no, look, seriously, just let's take the Enlightenment for a second. It's one of the most influential and examined movements in the modern world. Looked at by historians, sociologists, philosophers, scientists, politicians, all of whom come at it from a different perspective. And these different perspectives can be moulded to help different agendas. For example, my podcast is on freedom, so I could take the word of noted historian and educator Peter Gay to explain how the men of the Enlightenment united on a vastly ambitious program, a program of secularism, humanity, cosmopolitanism, and freedom, above all, freedom in its many forms which would help me push the narrative that the social movements of the French and American revolutions helped introduce a state of political freedom into the world whose equal had never been seen before. But we have to remember, my essay is on the hypocrisy of freedom, not just freedom. So what if I took the word of respected academic Jonathan Israel, who said that quotes such as these overstate the secularism of mainstream enlightenment, and the strength of the commitment of many enlighteners to free speech, free trade, and personal freedom? See, give me or any of you a few days and a few coffees, And by removing the lengthy debates behind these points, we could all form two equally strong, equally persuasive arguments for both sides. And that's the danger of being reductive. Anything can sound good if you know how to form an argument and are happy to strip away context to stick to talking points. But, as much as it makes Daddy Plato sad, most people can't spend eight years learning about the Enlightenment, as I'm sure they have jobs or kids or Stardew Valley to get to. Thus, we need to listen to some authority some news or academic outlet to actually get our information. But this, this circle, this overwhelming capability of access to information without context, is the modern hypocrisy of freedom. Freedom, in its purest form, as Locke just told us, is the actions we take based off our own choices. Because of this, some say freedom has no limits, or that its limit is merely the amount of choices you have. But that isn't quite correct. It's a nice way to think about it, if all you want to care about is promoting freedom. But to actually look at the limitations of freedom, we have to look behind our actions and past our choices to question what informs our choices, for that is the true limit of freedom. For some, it's ContraPoints and BreadTube. For others, it's Steven Crowder and the Dark Web. For me, the answer is simple. It's Captain America. Hey, I warned you this is going to be reductive. I seriously fucking love Captain America. Which is interesting because I, I kind of hate America. No offence, it just, it isn't for me. I lived over there for one year and goddamn I never missed Australia more. But Cap, now that man is for me. A shining beacon of moral integrity who always puts his best foot forward, always knows the right thing to say and the best action to take. Seeing that shield just sends shivers down my spine, bestows me with this otherwise unknown sense of imperial patriotism. There is just something so pure, so alluring about his unwavering sense of duty that inspires me to want to do better, which ties into the unfortunate truth of Captain America. Cap isn't a symbol of America, but a symbol of America's ideals. A symbol that reality can never live up to. Well, that's my thoughts at least. Which reminds me actually, before I can get into all this, I haven't even properly introduced the star of the show, have I? Mr. Steve Rogers, aka Captain America. Also, sorry for those who know all this stuff, but it's only going to take a minute. So, for those who don't know, 
Captain America is a fictional comic book character who first appeared in the Captain America comics issue number 1, March 1941. This version of Captain America, much like the cinematic version, had attempted to enlist as a soldier to help fight with the Allies through a sense of moral obligation, but he rejected due to physical frailty. The way this played out in the movies is that after failing one of his many attempts to join the war effort, Rogers is scouted by Dr. Erskine, enlisted as a possible candidate for the experimental super-soldier serum that had been developed by said Dr. Erskine. After proving his unshakable moral fibre by diving on a grenade in military boot camp, the weak and frail Steve Rogers is selected to be the first super-soldier, which, due to an attack by the evil Nazi-wing Hydra that subsequently kills Dr. Erskine and destroys the remaining serums, leaves Rogers as the only super-soldier. I personally really enjoy the MCU's take on this, and for anyone who doesn't know, MCU means the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, one way Dr. Erskine judges Rogers' character is by levelling the question, Do you want to kill Nazis? To which Roger responds, I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. Which I think we can all agree is a pretty darn good response. You see, Steve Rogers doesn't enter the war with ill will or bloodlust. He does it because he knows he's in a position to help. And for Rogers, if you can help, you should help. Now one important thing to note while doing this character profile, as it shall come up later, is that while Captain America is the leader of the Avengers and is seen as a superhero, the serum doesn't technically make him superhuman. In fact, it brings Steve Rogers to the pinnacle of human form. As the way the serum works is, it flushes Rogers' body with healthy cells, then subsequently alleviates him of all the weaknesses and deficiencies his body already had. This means that while Captain America is an expert military strategist and leader, an Olympic-level martial artist and gymnast has incredible strength and endurance, and his resistance to disease and fatigue, he is still just human. Well, you could argue maybe not later in the story when he picks up Mjolnir and is bestowed the power of Thor, but if all the nerds could shush for a second. We're only talking about the first movie right now, and I'm trying to get to a thematic point, which is that despite the perfect image of Captain America, he is no Superman. He is just a man named Steve Rogers, a person with flaws, weaknesses, and lots of limitations. So with all that being said, let's actually do what we're here for, and look at what Captain America, the first Avenger, can tell us about freedom. I find the first Avenger to be a fascinating movie to explore, because by design, it is a far simpler movie than the other two Captain Americas. To the very core of it, it's trying to be simpler. It's setting up a black and white world in which Captain America has to come from, so that when he's unfrozen, he can truly be the man out of time. A man who, in many ways, is out of touch with the complexities of the modern world. Which, personally, I think was a great choice. As not only did it create a strong base for the character of Captain America to grow from, but it also felt authentic to the true spirit of the initial Steve Rogers. In fact, I'd argue that Captain America the First Avenger parrots the two major themes that are present in the initial comic book incredibly well. The first theme is Nazis, and say it with me conservatives, are bad. Good start, good start. Number two is the fact that it's a marketing campaign, which doesn't it just warm your heart, it is capitalism after all. For the initial comics, this marketing campaign was to help push America to join the World War and sell wartime bonds. I don't know if I can do this. Nothing to. Sell a few bonds, bonds buy bullets, bullets kill Nazis. Bing, bang, boom. You're an American hero. For the MCU incarnation, 
It was to help set up and prepare everyone for the Avengers movie and Phase 2 of the MCU grand plan, and also to help sell numerous numbers of products. And they did also work in tandem with the US military to help design the image of Captain America and promote the army in a positive light. God, Marvel really does like their advertising, don't they? Anyway, one way they did this was by integrating non-segregated battalions, which definitely did not exist back in World War II, which, this along with many other points, are explored in Lily Fox's article, How Did the Marvel Movies Promote the US Military? But to be fair, a choice like that, while supported by the US military, isn't only done to make their image better. It helps strengthen the message of freedom and the ideals of Captain America, which he represents and fights for, plus enables positive and progressive inclusion of minorities within the movie, which I'm sure Disney cares about beyond just tokenism. Anyway, as I was saying, Marvel makes decisions like these because they want Steve Rogers and this movie to represent and reinforce the image of a great America. An America that fights for what is right and is willing to sacrifice anything for the good of the world. With this being their intention, the question we are then left with is, is this a true depiction of America? No. In fact, even within a movie censored on marketing campaigns, it speaks to how the drive of financial benefit can halt the pursuit of pure intentions. All Captain America wants to do is be on the front lines, to give what he can. I mean, this is one of the first things that we ever see from Rogers. Kominsky, Henry. Boy, a lot of guys getting killed over there. Rogers, Stephen. Kind of makes you think twice about enlisting, huh? Nope. All he cares about is giving what he can. Even back when he was just little Steve Rogers and had no hope of impacting the war effort at all, he is still adamant in his want to enlist, saying to Bucky, Bucky, come on, there are men laying down their lives. I got no right to do any less than them. That's what you don't understand. This isn't about me. But then despite all this desire, even after he is given the super soldier serum, is able to prove his ability and heroism to the leaders and public of America by chasing down the Hydra secret agent in the streets, he is still unable to live out his own free will, his choice. Instead, he is stripped of being the man he wants to be and becomes a symbol. He becomes... storm a beach or drive a tank but there's still a way all of us can fight who wants to fight like the man for what's right series e defense bonds each one you buy is a bullet in the barrel of your best guy's gun who will campaign door to door for america carry the flag shore to shore for america A dancing monkey, as he puts it himself. It makes you wonder if Captain America is truly free. If you look back at the words of John Locke for a second, we can see that liberty, will, is when you get to decide your action. But Steve Rogers never seems to be able to decide what happens in his life. And any time he does decide, it's because he is either going against the law or the orders of a superior officer. For example, it was only... After directly disobeying the general's orders and doing a solo mission to save the troops captured by Hydra that Rogers is able to help in the way Captain America should be helping. Or going even further back, to even try and get enlisted, and what got Dr. Erskine's attention in the first place was Rogers breaking the law 
due to his multiple attempts in trying to enroll. Ah, oh, you're from Paramus now. You know it's illegal to lie on the enlistment form. I find Roger's disagreement with the law and government a fascinating tension, actually, that hangs over throughout every Captain America movie. Obviously, it is most notable in Civil War when Cap officially becomes an outlaw, but even back here with his numerous attempts to join the army, we see that Rogers isn't interested in following the rules. He's interested in doing what's right. Certainly does have a particular American Revolution ring to it. Which is why it's so fascinating that someone who's the personification of the Enlightenment ideals that helped found the country has such a tough time dealing with the systems that are in place. Now, you could say, if you, if you really wanted to, if you wanted to add you know, a little bit of spice into this analysis, that Marvel here has potentially unintentionally depicted one of the classic flaws in liberalism, which is that the mantra of acting beyond authority only works if it's good men or moral people who do it. It's why a lot of people say libertarianism is a utopic idea that doesn't really work in practice. Complete liberty makes sense if everyone has Steve Rogers' mindset and wants to engage in a life thinking about equality and fairness for others. But what if they don't have good intentions? As Cap says in Civil War, governments are run by people with agendas, and agendas change. See, these ideas seem right when Rogers is making the decision, because Rogers is making the right decision. But that doesn't mean that the ideological system behind him is good. It just means he is. For example, to take us back into the real world, I could talk about the plethora of issues we see in government, our country's inability to move on to renewable resources because the political party's ties to donations from oil companies, the fact that every New South Wales Premier has left abruptly under suspicious circumstances all while being actively investigated for collusion since 2005. But instead, I'm going to try and stick to our theme of choice, and parallel the lack of choice our favourite outlaw hero Steve Rogers has by talking about prisons which is actually a very complicated and charged topic when you come from an Australian perspective. You see, other than the American Revolution, there is another interesting thing that came out of the social and political movements made in the 18th century, the Reformation of Prisons. As Jocelyn Pollock tells us in The Rationale for Imprisonment, new liberal, utilitarian and just different thinkers such as Bessari, Bentham and Kant started to influence the European thoughts on punishment and imprisonment. These came out of radical new ideas such as the right to defend oneself against accusers, taking away the death penalty in favour of imprisonment, and using imprisonment as a deterrent. Which, to be fair to Kant, he actually specifically did not agree with this last point, but unfortunately he was outvoted. On the face of it, most of these seem like good ideas, and were especially progressive from the old methods of torture, hanging and burning to death. But the third option... Does having prison as a deterrent work? Not really, because nothing was done from a social welfare perspective to actually fix the conditions that were making so many people have to live illegally. Thus, prisoners started to die from lack of food, illness, or all manner of effects of overcrowding that made England send its surplus of prisoners over to America and eventually over to Australia. Of course, it's been a long time since the 70s, 70s, so surely you would think our prisons are a bit better now. Honestly, not as much as you would hope. I mean, sure, technically, they are slightly more livable than the 18th century, but so is every aspect in life. We still have the same issues. As found in a 2016 study performed by the University of Sydney, 
The governments of Australia are still trying to stop overcrowding by creating private incentivization to reintegrate offenders by teaching them skills, while overlooking the broader driving forces behind recidivism, including economic deprivation and stricter sentencing laws. Simply put, our thought process just hasn't changed since the 1700s. By making prison inhospitable, we're still trying to paint it that you would have to be mad to make the choice to go there, without trying to look around our society and understand the social realities of why people have to make the choice to go there. You see, if we zoom out to 2021, Australia now has two fascinating facts surrounding its prison system. Number one, the First Nation people of Australia is the most highly incarcerated population on Earth. In fact, it is so high that if you're an Indigenous woman, you are 21.2 times more likely to be imprisoned than a non-Indigenous woman. 27% of our prisons are filled with indigenous inmates, when they only make up 2% of the population. It doesn't exactly sound like the access to opportunity and freedom that Captain America would want for everyone. Because despite all the goodwill from the secularist movements, we still see the same issues. We have a segregated population living in poverty that is unable to move out of this continuous cycle of oppression or incarceration, which was the exact same issue that founded... Australian colonisation in the first place. In fact, let's think about what these ideals, the Enlightenment, has brought to the First Nation people of Australia. Due to overcrowding in English prisons, it brought them colonisation, quickly followed by genocide, then slavery, then more genocide. The destruction of land, nations, cultures, languages, more genocide. And then when you're done with all that, you get thrown in jail for more slavery. And that's what freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness brought to Australia. Now for my second random prison fact. Australia has the highest proportion of inmates in private prisons out of every country in the world. I'm sure some people are wondering, why is that a big deal? For one, the sheer shadiness around the contracts. With every Australian state, bar Western Australia, refusing to indicate any amount of their funding to private prisons, it makes it very hard to see if it's actually a good investment and not just a waste of money. It allows our states and private prisons to obscure the objectives of the private prisons, making it very hard to judge if they're performing well. Plus, it allows more leeway with the running operations and standards of the prison, because it isn't directly tied back to the government, making it hard to hold them accountable for actions that happen within them. Another issue comes with the incentives of the prison. And I'm sorry to get all anti-capitalist on everyone, but we have to think logically for a second. If a government is heavily investing in private prisons, and if you're a company that runs private prisons, it's clearly not in your financial interest to limit the amount of people going to jail, especially given how cheap labour can be through prisons. Hell, back in 2016, the Office of the Inspector General of Prisons of New South Wales even emphasised the importance of evaluating prisons as workplaces, which is why I previously said we are effectively running an indigenous slave trade through prisons currently. But okay, to quickly break it down for everyone, as defined by the Correctional Service Industry of Australia in 2015, all convicted inmates are expected to join work programs, of which the minimum amount of work is 30 hours a week, and the maximum payment is $70.29. However, most working levels sit around a $25 to $30 pay per week, which comes out to a bit less than a dollar per hour. If you want to then factor in the fact that, short of a toothbrush, you get nothing in jail, like if you want a blanket, 
You gotta work and buy that shit. You want a pillow? Get working, buddy. Maybe this is just me and my inner skeptic, but it seems like these school programs don't do a lot for true rehabilitation, unless you know you want to get out of jail and work as a peg manufacturer, which why would they be hiring anyone when they can get free labour in jail? And you have to think, this is the positive, officially promoted side of jails. I mentioned before that one of the issues that we see within private prisons is their lack of oversight and the ability for us as a population to properly regulate if the prisons and guards are behaving properly. So to end this section, I'm going to leave you with two little anecdotal stories, one of which is a personal account of someone who I know, and the other is a more public figure whose story is more well-known. In fact, I'm going to start with the public figure, because it's, it's Peter Dutton, the unfortunately unironic Minister of Defence in Australia. Now, the story of Peter Dutton goes as follows. Before his time in office, Peter Dutton was a bored police officer in regional Queensland, who could only dream about the human rights violations he would one day break to torture refugees. Undoubtedly, while having one of these daydreams, Dutton decided he wanted to live out the urges on the next best thing, a group of Indigenous Australian teenagers. Thus, on this hot summer's day, Dutton round up several Aboriginal boys, put them in the back of his paddy wagon and drove them around for several hours in the blistering heat. He then drove them far, far away from where they lived, drove them to an isolated area, removed their shoes and told them to get out of the paddy wagon so that they would have to make their way home barefoot, wandering back through Queensland in the hot summer's sun. Of course, he received a slap on the wrist for this by the police department and was immediately scouted by the Liberal Party. Now, I say this because we all know the bread paradox. You know, someone is hungry so they have to steal bread, but then they can't get a job because they stole bread, so now they have to keep stealing bread because they keep going hungry, because obviously they keep stealing bread. And on and on the cycle goes. And of course, we all know this, it, it depicts how you don't have a real choice. Once you're in that position, once you're hungry, you have to steal bread. But that's not the only issue that we see. You see, unfortunately, you can be in a position where you have plenty of money, where you should have security and safety from this cycle, and yet you don't. Because by people like this, by the systems that are in place, you're continuously abused, attacked, provoked. And then once you're forced into retaliation because of this continuous attack on your person, well, that's when you get trapped. And this trap leads me to anecdote number two. Because anecdote number two is what happens when you're in jail. As you see, I know an individual who got put into jail. And in jail, there's the same sort of treatment. This person was harassed and provoked until they talked back at the guard they yelled at them. Which is a big no-no if you're in prison. This guard got angry, they got frustrated, so they decided to throw them in isolation. A usual response. But this, this guard had met this inmate before, they'd been in before, they were a repeat offender. So they decided they wanted to teach them a lesson. So when they threw them into isolation, they didn't just leave them by themselves. They didn't let them think over what had happened. They shot them up with ice. And when they put them, when they put them into that isolation, the only thing they left them with was one more dose and a razor, trying to induce them into suicide. So I know Captain America is usually more lighthearted than this. But I make this entire point to talk to, or look given the target market of this podcast more likely, about a cross-section of the population. In fact, actually, let me explain it like this. Because this way I can talk about why this episode is called The Hypocrisy of Freedom. 
And it's because very often the people who scream the loudest about freedom, who try to defend their own right to do what they want, do so at the cost of others. Now I've used prisons as an example because they are an atrociously outdated system based on a flawed ideology which functions to strip away basic human rights. However, you could just as easily talk about mask wearing or vaccines or hospitals or the militaristic occupation of foreign countries because they all highlight the same point. They all represent how for a group or individual to live out their idea of freedom, you need to first suppress someone else's. And while this flaw isn't inherent to freedom, it's unfortunately inherent to the system that promotes it. Now, to help my point, I'm going to play a small example of what I'm talking about, courtesy of Gary V. I never did one piece of homework in my entire four years of life. Why? And that I needed the time to hone my skills on my future and not figure out where Saturn was. So when I got home as a freshman in high school and the new Beckett baseball card guide would come out, I would lay in bed for six hours and memorize the prices on everything. Like, seriously, what an arrogant and frankly stupid way to view the world. Gary is famous because he made money. He made money on the backs of those who contributed to their society. This makes him think he's clever, because he has narrowed his worldview to a point so small that the only thing within it is himself. When I would argue that most intelligent people understand the benefits helping society brings. After all, do you know who probably does know something about Saturn? Physicists, astronomers, engineers responsible for satellites. The people who recognise that the best way to truly help yourself is to contribute to bettering the people around you. Not just play on the outskirts, slowly taking what you can from them. But selfishness corrupts. And it's corrupted freedom too. If you're someone who tries to use society to only benefit your liberty, to fight for your individual right to do whatever you want, but don't try to give back or use your actions to help maximise others' liberties, then you aren't on the side of freedom. You're just on the side of yourself. And that's fine. If you want to be selfish, be selfish. But don't try and tell yourself you're not by corrupting the idea of freedom. Look at me, being a sourpuss, talking about Australia and our issues. This is Captain America. Should be talking about America and their issues. Because if one place promotes freedom, promotes choice, it is America. Peggy. This is my choice. Also, I should really say that I'm like, I'm sorry that there was so little actual Captain America in this. I promise there'll be more in the later videos on the other two movies. It's just, as much as I love everything Captain America, there really isn't much that happens in this first movie. He turns into a Captain America, there's a few montages, he saves the day. It just, it, there's not much substantive of his performance here. Like, I spent ages trying to think of him promising to kill all of the Hydra agents after Bucky's not-actual death, with some deep-cut foreshadowing to him being able to leave his ideals for his best friend and one true love, but also, like, realistically, it probably was just a moment of lazy writing indicating that he's motivated to stop Hydra in the moment. I There's just not that much here that, like, he truly grows from. Thus, we should spend the time we have doing as good a job as Marvel did in fleshing out the Red Skull's motives and why Captain America had to stop him so badly.
Hydra is assembling an arsenal to destroy my enemies in one stroke. Wherever they are, regardless of how many forces they possess, all in a matter of hours. My weapons contain enough destructive power to decimate every hostile capital on Earth. There you have it. Evil organization wants mass destruction over its enemies by show of brute force. The obvious irony is, say it with me, this is America. In fact, it is far closer to America than I think a lot of people recognize. As we look back at World War II with increasing clarity, we can see that there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that Japan was going to surrender, and that this would almost certainly happen once Russia invaded Manchukuo, which did happen on the 9th of August 1945, three days after Hiroshima and the same day as Nagasaki. This knowledge leads us to the more insidious reasons as to why America dropped the bombs. Number one, the military wanted to see it in action, and I do mean the military, much like the dynamic of the Red Skull and Hitler. The nukes, while they could have been stopped by President Truman, weren't set off or launched by him. It was a military decision pushed by his Secretary of State. Number two, they wanted to show dominance. They wanted to ensure that Japan surrendered to them and not Russia. And number three, just like the Red Skull, they wanted to show the world what America was capable of. To show to everyone that they had manifested their destiny, that they were in the realm of the gods. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that.